HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Bob's Red Mill believes in baking, breakfast, and the pursuit of good food for all. Learn more at bobsredmill.com slash podcast. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. to Eat Your Words on Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Kathy Irway, and it is a gorgeous spring weekend here in Brooklyn. Uh, we're at uh, Heritage Radio Network's home at Roberta's Pizza in Bushwick. And um, I, for one, am really excited because my CSA is going, going to start this week. And I know a lot of other people are just starting their CSAs or going to the farmer's market and finding it filled with color for, for like the first time this this uh, year so far, at least in the Northeast here. <laughs> We're not that blessed with uh, uh, anything too colorful during the winter. Um, so it's a really great time to cook. Uh, but I find that a lot of people get confused sometimes of what to do with you know, things that they're unfamiliar with in their CSA, or they come across something that looks really great at the farmer's market, like, for instance, Hakurai turnips, those little white globes. They're really fetching to look at, but a lot of people don't know what exactly to do with it. So I'm really excited to be holding a book right now that really, really instructs you in a very novel way how to cook every anything, um, no matter who you are, how big your kitchen is, or where you are. And it's a really great idea. It's called Salt, Fat, Acid, Heat. And the author of it is on the line right now from California. Her name is Samin Nozrat. Hi, are you there? Hello, I'm here. Thank you so much for joining us, Amin. Oh, and, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Um, yeah, I'm sorry I missed you at the food book fair a couple weekends ago. I know that you're I one of the starring names a, there. It was like a mayhem. It was a food book mayhem. <laughs> I know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's always fun. But I heard you did a great job. Um, oh, thanks. Yeah. And uh, congrats on this book. It's your first book, but it's getting so much attention and um, I think really well deserved. So it's so a way to go. Thank you um, so much. It really feels it's very surreal in a lot of ways to uh-huh. want some to be working on something and want something for so long and then it happens and oh. you're like, 
Now what? <laughs> Long time in the making, it seems. Yeah. Um, so for those who may have um, heard, uh, maybe like sound, like that name sounds a little familiar. Um, Samin Nosrat was featured in the book Cooked by Michael Pollan in 2013. And uh, she was the the guru who sort of taught Michael Pollan how to cook in it. And I love those chapters. Um, I really got a sense of who you were, I think, (laughs) um, and your infectious laughter, I think you wrote. um, And uh, you're just like really wise, uh, practical cooking skills. It sounded almost like he might have had a little bit of a crush on you. Oh, well, I don't... <laughs> it was just so glowing. <laughs> we definitely, you know, it was really what it was. Maybe we both had, like, intellectual crushes on each other, mm-hmm. you know? Okay, yeah. So he was a professor... Um, yeah. The cool thing, the great thing about Michael is that he got, you know, like, he... I always... I have so many different ways of trying to explain like how we relate to one another. And to me, he is a person who's so in his head, he has this brilliant mind and I am like a hundred percent heart. And so, (laughs) and so there was, there were kind of very funny, a lot of very funny misunderstandings, I think. (laughs) But what was so beautiful was that like, because he is so sort of intellectual, like he was able to pick up on what I was doing and Mm. present it back to me in this kind of great way. And um, so he has been a great help to me. And I think, it's funny too because I have noticed over the time like he's loosened up a lot like physically in the oh, kitchen and stuff. Yeah, okay. So I think we rubbed off on each other a that's, little. Yeah, that's really cool. So and and in turn, it sounds like so you were like cooking with your heart and he's like furiously scribbling notes, trying to like methodically <laughs> write down whatever the heck you're doing. Um, and then he's inspired you. It sounds like to work on this method of teaching that you were demonstrating. Um, yeah. So he rubbed off on you in that way to kind of like sort of formalize it a bit more. Is that right? Absolutely. He yeah. definitely, you know, he, um, it was really funny. He, he picked up on salt, fat, acid, heat. Like, cause I was just, it's how I've always talked about cooking since mm-hmm. I sort of under, under, came to understand it. It's how I filed away everything that I've learned. And I definitely didn't have a formal language about it, but he picked up on that and that I was talking about. And he asked me, he said, what's the deal? You're so obsessed with these four things. What's the deal? And I said, oh, that's just how I think about cooking. That's how I talk about it. That's how I teach people. Huh. And he said, well, there's your book, you know, because at that time I was coming to him once a week with, like, a terrible book idea. Like, every week a new bad idea about a book I wanted to write. And every week he'd be like, this is a bad idea. You shouldn't do this. Really? You know, he was like, it's been sitting in front of you this whole time. Like, why don't you just pursue this? And I just felt like it would be so hard to take these mm. things and put them down on paper. I was I was really freaked out. I didn't want to do it. And um, mm. I was really resistant. And I even said to him that first time, I was like, you only want me to do this because it has four parts and all your books have four parts. <laughs> <laughs> that is really funny. That's great. The the quattro or the whatever, I don't know, the magic quartet of, of yeah. chapters. Um, yeah. So, so your whole sort of manifesto is about every good dish has a good balance of salt, fat, acid, and heat and these are the only elements you kind of really need to know to make anything taste good um is that or do you want to go on pretty much it yeah i mean to (laughs) me i think it well i came upon it at chez panisse where the menu changes every day and Mm. at the time i was 19 years old i had not really ever cooked anything before really i mean i grew up eating great persian food that my mom was cooking but i certainly had not spent any time in the kitchen. And so anything that I had made, you know, like I remember I made banana bread as a kid, it was all out of recipes. And then when I 
really demonstrated this interest at the restaurant. They told me, they gave me this long list of books and told me to go home and read. So I would read these cookbooks at night, and, you know, it was an, it was like an education in and of itself. You know, Paula mm-hmm. Wolford and Marcella Hazan and just like Patience Gray and so much beautiful food writing. But it definitely wasn't helping me get oriented in a kitchen where things were changing every day. Yeah. And so... Um, I kind of I kind of struggled with that for a long time, trying to put, make sense of what I was reading in the books, and then the fact that it wasn't being reflected at work. And I feel like I was treading water for a really long time. I had a headache. I would I always felt like I was failing, and mm. I didn't know what to do. And then eventually, I started to see these patterns in the fact that you know, because no one in the restaurant ever used recipes or cookbooks, and they never even asked really what temperature the oven should be or how long something should they cook. They just knew, they, yeah. Yeah, everybody knew everything. And so to me it was just, I, I never, you know, and also like when you're a baby kid <laughs> in a restaurant mm-hmm. kitchen, you're kind of just mm-hmm. in the way. Yeah. So, <laughs> and they're not really into you asking a bunch of questions and talking a lot. So you're sort of just learning by observing. So, and that for me came a lot more slowly than if I had been able to, but I probably wouldn't have even known what questions to ask. And so I think it was just a lot of observing over the course of, you know, over a year that I started to see these patterns of salt, fat, acid, and heat were these four things everyone was paying attention to. And that those were the words that we used when we tasted things like this needs a little more acid or is the, is the fat right? Or what kind of fat should we use? And, um, I remember I really felt like a genius when I'd figured this mm-hmm. out and I went to the chef and I said, Oh, I figured it out. Like this is the system. It's how all of the things were cooking. It's salt, fat, acid, heat. And, um, and he just looked at me. He was, like, super unimpressed. Oh. <laughs> and he was like, yeah, we already know that. Like, we all know uh. that. All good cooks know that. Uh, and I was like, hello, dude. Why didn't you say anything to me? <laughs> 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 you know, and I felt really betrayed. I was I was like, if you people already knew this, why didn't someone sit me down a year ago and explain this? And, wow. you so know, it, after... it wasn't in any of the books that I had read. Mm-hmm. And so at that point, I was like, I want to write this book one day. But I didn't about cooking or writing so I had to sort of put it in my pocket that is so fascinating and I love the story about how you were just so seduced by a meal that you had at Chez Panis that you decided to start working there as an intern at first or as a buzzer at first and then an intern and then for a year in the kitchen um, I'm curious who was the chef who told you duh or <laughs> oh, that was actually it was Chris Lee who's my okay. who really became my mentor he was the uh-huh. one who took me under his wing and later he left Chez Panisse to run another restaurant that mm-hmm. I helped him run and so and, yeah. but it was just very funny that um he was so nonchalant about it, you know, <laughs> you know? And, but they all yeah I mean and I also feel really lucky I feel like so many sort of serendipitous things happened in a row to bring mm-hmm. me into that place and I, I saved this money with my boyfriend for seven months to eat there and we had this magical meal and the dessert was served to us by this by who ended up being the floor manager who recognized me and hired me after mm-hmm. I wrote a letter and then when I started working there it was um I think I started working there in 2000, and in 2001, the restaurant was named, like, the best restaurant in the world by Gourmet Magazine, and the chefs really were, at that time, it was just a time in the restaurant's history when so many people had worked there since the beginning or since close to the beginning, so there was just this sort of incredible encyclopedic knowledge in the place. Mm -hmm. All the cooks I was working with had been cooking for 10, 15, 20 years, and so they were they were amazing. It was an amazing time. And almost every chef that I worked under at that time has gone on to be like 
an incredible restaurateur or, re- or cook, you know, David Tanis, um, Cal Peternell, um, we R- had him on Moore, the show these people who yeah. went on to open beautiful restaurants. Mm-hmm. And so I feel really lucky. Like I just was there at a beautiful moment. That is really cool. And, it, and it's real interesting because you hadn't trained to be a chef. You hadn't thought of taking culinary school or anything like that um, until you ate a, ate a meal there. So it really shows how you're kind of leading your life also with your heart <laughs> rather than, you know, this methodical approach. You're like, OK, I take this class and then whatever. Um, so that's that's really interesting. It's pretty funny. My friend, uh, one of my friends wrote a little mini profile about me and he was like, it's very interesting because your style of cooking and this thing that you're talking about is so loose, you know, and it's all about instinct and the Mm -hmm. senses and feeling. But I have a, he's like, I suspect that you're a crazy planner. Like I suspect (laughs) that you have, have had this like master plan. And and I was like, like, yeah, it's kind of true. I I kind Mm -hmm. of am at both ends of the spectrum in this one way where I'm like, let's go with the flow. Let's do the thing. But I also am extraordinarily in neurotic. I'm highly anxious. Mm. (laughs) And I have this journal and I was like, let me show you this journal that I've had for over 10 years where I only write in it a couple times a year, but I sort of write down all my goals and I write down all the stuff I want to do. And, um, and we and like only recently did I start going back in, and looking at it, but it is this amazing thing how even a long, long time ago I knew very specifically like all the publications I wanted to write for and all of the places I wanted to visit and all the things I wanted to do. So it is kind of a little bit of both. I think it would be disingenuous to say mm-hmm. that I'm totally fly by the seat of my pants. No, of course. <laughs> yeah, so so what else have you been up to now that you've um you know, cooked in, you know, the best kitchen in the country <laughs> and um, you went on to become a chef de cuisine at uh, Chris Lee's restaurant in San Francisco, mm-hmm. which is Ecolo, an Italian Ecolo, restaurant. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Ecolo, um, What else have you been up to? So, well, actually, so Ecolo closed in 2009. And so for me at that point, you know, I never really had ambitions of having my own place or even really being a chef. It right. sort of just happened and I went along. And I was still a student at UC Berkeley when I started working at Chez Panisse, and I have always wanted to be a writer. Okay. And in fact, um, right when I was sort of getting into cooking, I was I applied to graduate school to go study poetry, and I got into this program in New York. And so I went to visit. It was my first trip to New York City, and I went to go visit Sarah Lawrence College. And the weekend that was like the students visiting the campus weekend was the same weekend Chris Lee and his family were visiting Italy. And I had asked them to ask this chef, Benedetta Vitali, if she would... Um, let me come do an apprenticeship there. And so the same weekend that I was visiting this program was when I heard back from Chris and he said, yes, like Benedetta said, you can come, you can come anytime. And so I had sort of this fork in the road of do I like pursue cooking or do I go to this writing program? And I did, I ended up going to Italy and doing (laughs) a lot of writing and stuff, but I sort of never abandoned the dream of you know, writing books and Mm -hmm. and having that. So it always was this thing. I've always pursued the two things, you know, next, like simultaneously. And, um, and in 2006 at Ecolo one day, I was looking at the, you know, reservations and seeing who was coming in to the restaurant. And like I did every day, just to see if we need to make sure we're sending something special to people. And I saw Michael Pollan's name. He was reserved. And so that was when I wrote him a letter asking if he would, um, if he would let me take his class at the School of Journalism. Mm-hmm. 
And so he resisted a little bit, but I kept pushing. <laughs> and so that was how I got to know him was he let me take this class. And I, and so after like almost 10 years of cooking, that, or I guess it wasn't 10 years, it was six or seven years of cooking, then I sort of for the first time now stepped into this writing world, mm-hmm. which was amazing. And I had these parallel communities. And a lot of the students who are in that class with me, with Michael, are still, you know, my colleagues. We work in a big writing uh-huh. office in downtown Oakland. And so um, when Echolo closed, I, I, was, I was ready to not work in restaurants anymore. Uh-huh. And I was like, how do I redefine, you know, what it means to be a professional cook? So I experimented in a few different ways. I opened this thing called Pop-Up General Store, which was sort of like a precursor in some ways to Good Eggs or like um, – it was this thing where our artisans would come to this marketplace once a month or twice a month, and people could pre-order what they wanted online, and then you could also come and have sort of a farmer's market experience. Oh, cool. But it was it was sort of by mistake that I opened it, and it ended up being super, super popular, and it was too much. Like, I couldn't <laughs> handle it, and I wasn't really making money, and all uh-huh. these VCs were coming and trying to get me to make that my future and I just I realized I didn't want to do that so I closed that and I sort of taught other people what I learned from that and then I I redoubled my focus on writing Mm -hmm. so every time it's been taking like a step away from something else and writing and Mm -hmm. um so now I mostly write that's the main like way I spend my time but this book is being turned into a documentary series so um a oh, big part great. of the next year will be spent doing that. Oh, that's amazing. Congrats. Yeah. Thanks. What, where can it we... is really bananas. It's bananas. Yeah. All right. So we'll keep tuned uh, into that. That's really exciting. And it's so great that this is uh, sort of like the culmination of all those years of of um, both cooking and writing studies. Um, so, I mean, let's cut to a quick little commercial break and we'll be right okay. back to chat more. Mm-hmm. Sounds good. Great. This is Cynthia, host of Primary Food, here with Anna Bonengel, a registered dietitian with Eat With Zest, eatwithzest.com, and we are here to talk about Bob's Red Mill and superfoods. So, Anna, what is a superfood anyway? One way to think about it is if you think of foods along a spectrum, there are a few foods with fewer nutrients, and then there are foods that are packed rich with nutrients and antioxidants. And so superfoods are those that are on the furthest on the scale in terms of having the most nutrients and antioxidants. Which foods are considered superfoods? Some are super well-known, like blueberries, kale, salmon, but now people are also going nuts over lesser-known foods like goji berries, acai, flax, and chia seeds, and a really popular one now is black garlic. So if I'm trying to eat better, should I go on a strictly superfood diet? Well, you know, superfoods are, of course, great, and I will say the more you eat, the better. However, eating only superfoods would make you deprived of essential nutrients from nourishing food groups like whole grains. Okay, got it. Well, that's great because our sponsor at HRN, Bob's Red Mill, produces a lot of delicious whole grain products. You know, to be honest, I'm a huge Bob's Red Mill fan. I love a lot of the the whole grains that they provide, but I particularly love they've come out with a blueberry hazelnut oatmeal cup. That is totally delicious. It's got classic superfoods like blueberries, but also some of the more trendy ones like flax and chia seeds. Um, it's It's a really nice mix of trend and tradition. 
Bob's Red Mill doesn't chase fads. They just keep working hard to offer as many delicious whole grain and organic food options as possible in an endless commitment to good food for all. Learn more at bobsredmill.com slash podcast. All right, that was a fun little message from our sponsor, Bob's Red Mill. And we're back chatting with Samin Nozrat, the author of Salt, Fat, Acid, Heat, Mastering the Elements of Good Cooking. Thanks so much again for joining us, Samin. Oh, thanks for having me. <laughs> yeah, so this is such a cool book. Um, anyone who picks it up will notice that it has really lively, fun illustrations throughout it. In fact, there's even a, a fold-out page that you can see these like Venn diagrams <laughs> or something like that mm-hmm. and uh, bar charts. Um, really, really fun produced uh, book. Um, so my question is, um, okay, salt, fat, I'm going to play devil's advocate a little bit. Okay. Okay. Cause I know that you've been teaching salt, fat, acid, heat, like the sort of theories behind this, um, for many years and you've probably heard a lot of questions maybe the same ones over and over but okay so what you say that i'm like my blood pressure is rising i'm like well okay (laughs) so i mean okay i was let's start out simple do you consider this to be um sort of like a region agnostic approach to cooking so no matter what cuisine okay well okay oh and now i think i know where you're going (laughs) so um Okay, let me um, let me say I do, I do think that it's generally at, I uh, yeah yes I'm gonna say say yes but with caveats okay. because um, of course different regions you know people love to throw Japan at me I don't oh. know if that's where you were going um, as as an, an exception and a lot and Korea also which like really and there you know I forget what the name of the um, there's sort of a triumvirate of things that Japanese cooks are taught. I think it's called washoku. Oh, that's like a home cooking sort of. Yeah, uh, it's like style. sweet, um, sweet, salty, sour, maybe. Mm, okay. And so, and then a, there's a lot of sugar in Korean food and stuff, also. And so, there's sometimes people are like, "Well, you've forgotten, you know, these, this other important thing." And mm-hmm. um, I don't think, and or as people will say, "Well, there's no fat in Japanese food," <laughs> you know. And so, <laughs> what do you, you know. This, you're completely wrong. Like you're, yeah. it's not universal. Mm-hmm. And um, to me, absolutely, I think I just want to offer this as a way to understand cooking in general, wherever mm-hmm. you are. And then, of course, there are going to be exceptions, and of course, there are going to be more things to learn. And so, I hope that it just inspires your curiosity to go on. And certainly, my in my curiosity has been like absolutely peaked and I'm really excited to get to travel and eat more things and learn more things and I would like to maybe find that I was wrong but Mm -hmm. I do think that there are some basic things um, some of the things that I've learned along the way are like fat always behaves in a certain way you know we as humans are wired to like the taste of salt and salt fundamentally does things to food to make it taste better to us Mm -hmm. so we want that we crave acidity in food to balance flavor. Like, there are just some things that are human nature no matter where you are. And um, so I do think there are some fundamentally universal things about it. And if this is a great sort of, I don't know, framework for understanding mm-hmm. good cooking wherever you are. But there's always more to learn, you know, for yeah. all of us. So that's my... I love that's, it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, there's always going to be exceptions, but this is the way to kind of make something taste good, you know, if you're yeah. just searching in the dark. Um, and that that's 
extremely useful. I, I meet so many people who would like to make something great with this piece of fish. And just knowing this kind of like in the back of your head will really, really inspire, I think, a lot of great dishes. Um, but you, I mean, some dishes, though, I'm thinking don't really have one or two or maybe just one of these things. So what yeah. about a classic, um, uh, was, what was I going to say, a beef bourguignon? Mm-hmm. Where's the acid in that? Oh, beef bourguignon is full of acid. There's what? a ton of acid oh, in all that wine. wine, and that wine's really important. Okay, fine. And so if that wine's not in there, you know, if you were to make it, say, just with broth, you would really get all Boring. of that sweetness from the onions and okay. the carrots, and there would be also there's a sweetness that comes with the browning, and then there wouldn't be anything to balance it. And so... Um, that wine is really, really important there. And there are absolutely dishes that don't have, you know, in fact, I have a friend who was living in Japan after she took the classes and she was like, you know, I've noticed there just isn't a lot of acidity and stuff. And she would send me like lists of dishes with ingredients that had no, absolutely nothing acidic. Okay. And, uh, and I was like, you know, yeah. you're right. Maybe, maybe. Um, and sometimes what I like, what I've come to understand is that sometimes it's the way a dish fits into a meal, mm-hmm. you know, and sometimes maybe, and also maybe I'm wrong. Like maybe it's not a hundred percent of the time. Maybe it's just 99% of the time. So, mm-hmm. <laughs> and, but, okay. um, but a lot of the time, the thing about the acids in particular is you don't necessarily, you know, maybe we just only think of acid as like that squeeze of lemon I, I or a few so. drops of vinegar, yeah. but actually Anything fermented is acidic, mm-hmm. you know, and that includes tea and chocolate Bread. and coffee. Yeah. And, um, and so sometimes we haven't even attuned our minds to thinking about that. But um, one of my favorite, like, examples to use that kind of, was mind-blowing for me to realize was that caramelized sugar is acidic, is quite acidic, and it's oh, much wow. more acidic than just a spoonful of white sugar. And so if you, like, caramelize a quarter cup of sugar and then add that caramel into a custard base or an ice cream base and then make another ice cream base with just a quarter cup of sugar. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the caramelized one will t- the caramelized one will taste far less sweet. It will taste so much more balanced and it'll have all of these other flavors because all of these molecular changes are happening in that sugar that bring all of this other sort of richness of flavor. And so there's a wow. way where um, there's acid sort of hiding in, in plain yes. sight a lot mm-hmm. of the time. And it's maybe what I'm hoping to do is help you learn how to recognize that so that you have greater agency in making the choices. Yeah. I think a lot of people don't realize that they're eating because, you know, when you think of acidic, you think of like a salad dressing or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, I'm looking at people right now eating pizza at Roberta's. I'm like, oh, it's a sauce, you know, that. Or, of course. The like you were saying. Sauce, and even cheese, too. Uh, you know, oh, cheese is hmm. to me a great, like cheese and yogurt and any fermented dairy is like a great, that's like back pocket trick, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> to make anything sort of pop. My family's from Iran, so I grew up eating like a spoonful of yogurt on pretty much everything. I mean, mm-hmm. even embarrassingly, as a kid, I just loved putting yogurt on everything. So even when my mom would make like spaghetti with meat sauce, I would put yogurt. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Do you think that your, um, you know, your Persian heritage and your mom's cooking helps sort of guide your your philosophies in cooking today? Absolutely. It's funny that I I didn't really ever. Um, I wouldn't have been able to understand it. I think until I had this framework. But and also until I really started to look at Persian cooking systematically and understand mm-hmm. it as a as a 
as a culture, like beyond just sort of what my mom was doing. And um, there is this sort of beautiful, it's, it's, it's almost like a yin and yang. It's called Sardi and Garmi. Um, mm. That's, that's at the foundation of Persian cooking and at the foundation yeah. of, um, and well-being, the, right? of, of, of making mm-hmm. a plate. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so there's so much balance balancing. It's like a Persian, a perfect ideal plate of food at someone's house, an Iranian person's house is like a balancing act where there's, you know, the crunchy tadig, the crispy rice from the bottom of the pot mm-hmm. and then the creamy yogurt. Mm-hmm. And there's like some sweet, that maybe has plums in it and then this like pickle or feta cheese and Lots so there's herbs, always right? a little bit of everything to balance everything else and that's this ideal thing and so my mom was sort of inoculating me with this sense you know uh-huh, uh-huh. <laughs> without ever like... explaining it to me and without me understanding it but I have always sought that balance and that contrast is important. and that yeah. ultimately is at the base of my cooking that's how I make a salad you know and I'm like oh I have these you know um, this creamy dressing so I want to have a really crunchy lettuce or a crunchy, you know, seeds on top or something. And I want to have it, this thing to be rich and fatty, but I also want to make sure it's nice and acidic. And so there is a way where absolutely that has infiltrated my cooking. And also just fundamentally with my, mm-hmm. like, exorbitant use of herbs. Yes. Persian food is, like, all herbs. So that's, I <laughs> I'm think, just adding herbs wherever <laughs> I go. Yeah. I think that's really cool. And it really shows how, you know, you understand all these flavors coming in balance and textures too um and i i hate to say it but i wonder if someone you know no offense if you did you know someone who was raised eating something just really plain like under seasoned like a plain hamburger right without um without the pickles (laughs) for acidity without the um without salt (laughs) or something like that would have um grasped this this sort of concept as readily yeah i I, I like to believe the best, you know, people. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and also I, I have a lot of friends who have kids now, and I spend a lot of time with kids, and different parents have different sort of philosophies of how to get food into their kids' bellies, you know. Yeah. And uh, it's interesting, and I've realized, like, it kind of doesn't really matter, like, especially because re- B. Wilson wrote this book about kids and, and pickiness. I don't remember what it's called, but it was all about sort of the childhood tendencies of like creating palettes for children. And mm. so much of what I, I realized from reading that book was that um, as like I think it's up to 18 months is essentially when that's when a kid is really like having Receptive. this explosive experience oh, wow. of the more flavors you can get into their mouth, the more um, – the more curious eaters they'll be. Uh But then after that, like all those ages when children are like, I just want ketchup and pasta or whatever. (laughs) It's fine. You know, it doesn't really matter. Like that's not the ages. Like it's more about to me if cooking and eating is like, let's bring everyone to the table. Let's make everyone sit and talk to each other. Let's have fun together. And, um, and that's the height of it. And all of the other stuff can come as long as you're curious and open. Yeah. No matter, you know, what you're studying too in school. (laughs) Yeah. <laughs> um, well, thank you so much, Samin. It looks like that's about all the time we have, but thank you so much for sharing your, your wonderful journey with us. And um, this is a fabulous book. Oh, so thank congrats. you so much for having me. I hope I get to meet you in person someday. Yes, please come back to Brooklyn again. <laughs> I will. I always do. So all right. <laughs> I'll track you down. And best thank of you. luck. Yeah. With the, with the documentary. Oh, yeah. Uh, um, <laughs> all right. Well, thanks, everyone at Heritage. We'll see you next week on Eat Your Words. Thanks so much. Oh, I like the way you do. Whoa, the way you do.
Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.